Hello, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Amy Trulin's thesis theater. Uh, I'll let her take over in a moment, but just to uh, give a quick background, she's got um, a background in uh, theology and in history and in English. And this is, remarkably enough, uh, not her first, but her second master's uh, that she's completed. Um, it's been my pleasure to see her uh, in a number of philology classes and then working here on this, on, on her thesis on the Lord's Prayer in Old Germanic. Uh, virtually every version of the Lord's Prayer there is in an Old Germanic language is, is, is treated by her. But I'll let her um, now take it away and tell you all about it. Okay, well, I'm gonna share my screen here because I've got some slides and some things to show. So let me make sure that this works. And there it is. I hope everybody can see that okay. I think that's going. So what I want to just start out, I'll start out a little bit by introducing myself. Um, I'm Amy Trelene. I live in Fairbowl, Minnesota. And yes, the, the country of snow and cold. And uh, I'm, is my screen here still working, Nelson? I'm sorry. Whoops. Yes, it is. Okay. For some reason, I, I'm not seeing what I need to see here. My computer is misbehaving itself slightly. As long as you can see and hear me, I'll just keep on going and let my computer catch up with me. So anyway, what I was saying is I'm from uh, Faribault, Minnesota, and I actually have four, this is my fourth master's degree. Um, I will be going on for my doctorate, hopefully at the beginning of this coming, this coming year. And my project for my thesis, um, I started out doing something actually rather different. But I moved into working on the Lord's Prayer. And I wanted to see what the Lord's Prayer looks like in all kinds of different Germanic languages. I started taking the Old English and the Old Norse classes with Nelson and Paul, and it really struck my interest. Um, I came to philology and to languages through Tolkien mostly, but I've always had an interest in it. So I. Uh, I just got started on working on this wonderful project and what I ended up with, I never expected. Actually, I didn't expect the scope of this particular project. Um, as I look back on it now, as I've created the website that uh, is a result of this project that I'll give you at the end of this, um, it ended up to actually be uh, over 230 pages. I looked at 21 texts in five different languages. I looked at Gothic, Old Saxon, Old High German, Old English, Old Norse. And I studied texts from the latter half of the fourth century, the Gothic text, all the way up to manuscripts, the Old Norse homilies, which were right around the turn of the 12th century. They're probably copies of earlier texts. We don't really know for sure. And what I did with these was actually to create a critical edition and commentary. So for each of these texts that I work with, I gave an intro that has details about the primary features, their historical context, their composition, their manuscripts. I provided a semi-normalized text. Semi-normalized means that I worked with the manuscripts in most cases, and I made them a bit more accessible to readers, but I kept the flavor of the manuscript. When you do manuscript work, you kind of want people to realize what that manuscript is going to look like and what it actually entails, some of the features of it. 
So I really wanted to keep some of those. So I chose a semi-normalized text instead of a normalized, which turns everything kind of into a modern look. I didn't like that as well. I, I wanted to really have part of the flavor of that manuscript. I also gave a modern English translation, which isn't gonna necessarily sound modern to a lot of people. I tried to keep it close, again, capturing the flavor of those texts. That was what was most important to me. And I did a commentary on each of the texts, sometimes line by line. So they get kind of detailed and, and kind of long. Like I said, at the end of this, I'll give you the website. So you'll be able to go there and check out the work for yourself as much detail as you want. So I wanted to share with you some of the texts today and also share some of the manuscripts, which we're very lucky. Most of them are digitized now and available online. So we are able to share some of those. I think I see a couple of questions coming up before I get into that. Is there something there, Nelson, that I can answer? Uh, just confirming that people can see your screen. So. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at the first of these texts. Whoops. Okay. Did that come up for you? It should be a Gothic Lord's Prayer. Yes, there oh, it is. Okay. My computer is lagging a little bit, so you know that. All right, so this is the Gothic Lord's Prayer. And this was copied as part of a, a Gothic translation of the Bible by a bishop named Ufila, or sometimes he's called Wulfila. And it's found in a manuscript called the Codex Argentus. And this is really quite a manuscript. It's from probably about the sixth century or so. And it is written in silver and gold ink on purple dyed parchment. It is really quite an amazing text. In fact, I'm gonna give you a glimpse of it here before you even, before we even get into the, the actual, uh, the text itself. If you can see that here, this is the Gothic manuscript. Now, if you notice this, the letters do not look the same, right? These are not normal standard letters that we're looking at. And that's right, they are not. This particular uh, text, this manuscript, is written in an alphabet actually designed by Ufila himself to capture the sounds of the Gothic language. He was not satisfied with the, the alphabets available to him, so he just simply created his own. But of course, for ease, I had to transliterate this so that people could actually read it. So this is a transliterated version that I've got up on the screen here of this Gothic Lord's Prayer. And Ufila probably translated this sometime in the mid 300s, getting toward the late. His death date is set about 380 to 381. We don't know for sure. But I'll just read out the, I'm not going to read all of the Gothic or some of these languages because I know for sure I'll trip over them. I might call on Nelson to do it once in a while. But I'm going to read out the translation for you here so you can see. Uh, and then I'll, I'll just do a couple of commentaries or comments on it. But in translation, this reads, Our Father, you in heavens, may your name be hallowed. May your reign come. May your will be as in heaven also upon earth. Give to us our continual bread for this day 
and forgive for us that which we may be owing, even as also we forgive our debtors. And may you not bring us into temptation, but free us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory into ages. Amen. That sounds really different, doesn't it, from the Lord's Prayer that we're used to hearing. And a lot of these do sound quite different from our normal translation of the Lord's Prayer. I just wanted to point out a couple of things about this. That first word there, Atta, Father. Now, Gothic has a word, Father, but Ulfila, for some reason, chose to use the word Atta instead, even though he was translating from the Greek, which has Pater there. So as I looked at that, I thought, why? Why did Ufala choose that? So I did a little bit more translation or a little bit more looking around. And in Proto-Indo-European, the etymon for this says that Atta descends from a nursery word, something meaning daddy or mommy, and it carries overtones of family intimacy. So I'm thinking, hmm, maybe Ufala wants to focus on the intimacy that we have with God as our father. As the word descended into other languages, Atta was used as a greeting for elders in the Greek, in the Latin. And here, Ulfala chooses it, perhaps again, to stress that intimacy that he has with God and also as a greeting of respect toward God. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the commentary that I did on these. I also did quite a bit of linguistic commentary as much as I could. Thank you, Nelson, for all your, your help on that. Okay, so are there other questions or comments before we move on? So I've got quite a few texts to share. Looks good so far. Um, okay. I don't think anything's coming in. Okay. Uh, oh, wait, no. Uh, Rob is actually asking uh, if there's any relationship of Gothic uh, Atta and uh, Aramaic Abba at Romans 8.15. I think that there is. Nelson, you're probably a little bit better uh, situated to answer that than I am. It seems that there would be to me. Uh, I, I th my, my, I think I would say there's probably not a direct connection, uh, but that they're both, I think, usually understood as kind of these, these nursery forms. Uh, so they're, they're different, they're independent nursery forms, Atta in Indo-European, Abba in the Semitic language family, but they're, but they're kind of parallel processes in each case that, that produce these words and then get used in maybe kind of similar ways. Okay. Not being you. a specialist in Aramaic at all, that's <laughs> at least what, what I would guess. Um, oh, we have more questions coming in. Um, okay. Uh, Kate is asking if you've uh, heard Tom Shippey talk about Attila the Hun. Yes, I have. Uh, yes, of course, Tom Shippey, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of us have. Uh, and Joe is asking if scholars know, uh, the font is so small, uh, if scholars know these uh, are the Lord's Prayer texts, uh, Lord's Prayer from the surrounding texts, or did they find out after they translated them? Well, I, I think, you know, that this particular text was found in the Gothic Bible. So we can look at the context of, um, of the Gothic, of the scriptures, of what we have, what we don't have, and we can, can determine that this, that this is the Lord's Prayer from its location, but also from its, from its language. 
you know, as scholars know these languages, we can determine what these are. Um, just as an interesting note, we are missing the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer from the Gothic Bible. It's just not extant anymore. We don't have it. So I could only work with the Mathian version. And other texts I used both quite a bit. So there yeah, are different. All of these old, all of these old manuscripts are very badly damaged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to show you next uh, something that's a little bit different. This is called the Heliant, and this is an old Saxon text. And this is the Lord's Prayer from this. And notice the difference in the formatting. This is a poem. This is a literative poem in old Saxon. We have 5,983 lines of it. We don't have all of it. I wish we did. Um, but what we do have is wonderful. And it was probably composed about eight, between 825 and 850. We don't know the name of the composer, of the author, of the poet. We just, we don't know. Uh, the Saxons had been forced into conversion to Christianity by Charlemagne. And the poet took it on himself to truly convert these people, or at least to work toward it because their Christianity after a forced conversion was um, chancy at best. And the Hellion poet wanted to bring the gospel, the gospel message to the Saxons in a way that they could understand more easily, in a way that they could accept and even embraced. So he chose a traditional Germanic poetry as his medium. And he painted a picture of Christianity that was familiar to people, to the Saxon people, and could enter into their minds and their hearts more easily. And as we look at this, you're going to see some of the, the ways that he did this. So what we have here, let me just read out the translation to you because this is rather beautiful. It says, Father is of us, of children of people, who is in the high heaven realm. May your name be hallowed by each of words. May your mighty realm come. May your will happen over all this world, the same on earth as it is up there in that high heaven kingdom. Give us each of days, the good Lord, your holy help. Or excuse me. Give us each of days counsel, your good, the good Lord, your holy help. And free us, guardian of heaven, of many sin guilts all as we do for other men. Let not evil beings lead us astray, thus forth according to their will, as we are worthy, but help us against all evil deeds. Again, that sounds really different, doesn't it? It's not the Lord's Prayer that we're used to hearing. And I wanted to point out a couple of things in here that show us this was geared toward these Saxon people that have just recently been converted, mostly by force, and that the poet is trying to, to attune, I could, could say, to Christianity, to bring them mind and heart into the gospel. So he's adapting the Christian message to where they are. He comes to meet them where they are. And take a look at line eight. I don't know if you can see it real well on your, on your screens or not, but it's the line that starts out with the word gef. Gef usudago. And then it uh, goes on from there. But I want you to focus on the word rod, which is on that line. 
Now, normally we say in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It's so quick, it's so easy, it just rolls right off our tongues. But this doesn't say that. When I was reading it, I actually accidentally made a mistake right there. But it actually says, give us each of days your counsel, your rod. Rod doesn't mean bread, not in, in the least. It can mean help, it can mean support, but it also means counsel or eloquence or even wisdom. One of the scholars who's worked on this poem points out that the poet might have realized that the Saxons would have thought it kind of lazy to ask heaven for bread. And therefore, the poet expanded his petition. He made it a petition that would be something that a, a follower would ask of his leader. Remember, this is a Germanic people now. They have war bands, they have war leaders, you know, the war band leaders, and those leaders were expected to provide, yes, material necessities, but also wisdom, support, help, and counsel to their rulers. So the poet chose, the, or to their followers rather. So the poet chose this word rod to express a much greater uh, petition than just merely physical bread. And it's a wonderful way of looking at the Lord's Prayer in a whole other way and how we depend on God for all of our needs, not just our physical needs. Questions or comments at this point? Uh, Coley is asking uh, if any translation implied a person when referring to evil, that is an implication of the evil one. And was this the case in any other versions? Some do. And, you know, in this one, as I was, was reading, uh, we actually have let not evil beings lead us astray rather than lead us not in temptation or deliver us from evil. Let not evil beings. So this is kind of, again, hinting at what the Saxons would have believed, that the world was full of these beings of, of all sorts, supernatural beings. And the poet is, again, adapting his way of speaking and thinking to them. Let not evil beings lead us astray. But often the word can be kind of ambiguous in some of the other texts that can be evil, period, or evil one, either, either one, one or the other, probably intentionally ambiguous in some places. So, good question. Uh, and Sparrow is asking um, what the, um, What's the relationship of, of a warrior to his band leader? Expectations and mutual responsibilities? Yes, okay, so the war band leader was expected to provide for his followers, provide for their material needs, also provide wisdom, provide counsel. Uh, you know, there's the whole gift giving thing that we read about in Beowulf an awful lot. Lots of gift giving back and forth, but in return, there's followers, the members of the war band to be loyal, to provide support in war, support in times of peace, and to be completely loyal to their, to their leader. So if you notice, the poet of the Heliant here is transposing that and talking about how the relationship between Christ or God and his followers can be like the leader of a war band and his followers. Very much trying to touch the cultural aspects of the Saxon people in this poem. And again, help them understand the gospel message in a way they could. I think that's all for now.
All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. This is the first of the Old High German slides, and this one is very early. I'm also going to show you the manuscript on this one. This is the St. Galler Paternoster. I'm going to put up the manuscript here so that you can see it. Yes, it looks a lot like Swiss cheese. Uh, writing materials were not cheap or easy to come by in those days, so apparently they used damaged things even like this. Because notice that the uh, scribe wrote right around it. There was uh, right, right around the holes, right around the gaps. He just wrote right around it. Okay, so I'm going to put us back on the text again so that you can see what this looks like. This version of the Lord's Prayer, the oldest of the Old High Germans, it's probably the oldest text we have of the Lord's Prayer in Old High German. It was written perhaps around 790 or so. And that's um, kind I of don't know hmm? for other people, but it, I think it has um, your screen maybe still stuck on the uh, manuscript image. Oh, okay. Let me see if I can get it back here. Uh, ah, there we go. There we go. Okay. My computer is just a little bit fussy today for some reason. Okay, so in 789, Charlemagne issued his Admonatio Generalis. And this decreed that all of his subjects should be able to say the Lord's Prayer and the Creed, at least in their own language. Probably this St. Galler Paternoster is a direct result of that order. It's written in the Alemannic dialect of Old High German. I'm not going to get into this too much because it's very complicated. But there were a lot of different dialects in Old High German, and they each show different sound changes. Old High German experienced a second sound shift that changed some of the consonant sounds. And um, this Alemannic dialect shows a few more of those sound changes than some of the other Old High German dialects do. We'll kind of leave it at that because it gets very complicated. If you want to know more, take the philology classes. They're wonderful. They'll explain all of that. So let me read the translation of this. And it's, it's not entirely accurate, you will notice, this particular Paternoster. It says in translation, Our Father, you are in heaven. Hallow your name. May your kingdom come. May your will become as in heaven, so as on earth. Give us today our continual bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those obliged to us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Notice I said, hallow your name. That is something different about this text. It's actually a bit of a translation error. Um, some people, some scholars have said that the manuscript could be amended here to have it be more or closer to our, our normal, may your name be hallowed. I chose to leave it be because the manuscript shows the second person single, singular imperative, hallow, hallow your name. And I thought, you know, it's kind of a, a neat variation for a very early text that perhaps the translator didn't quite get the meaning somehow, or perhaps he made a mistake, but I wanted to keep it the way it was. 
So this is the first of these old high German texts. And again, I just wanted to kind of point out as well, a couple of those sound changes. If you look at the word bruth, pruth, excuse me, uh, here on the, I'm trying to find it on the text, but um, that word pruth would normally be brut in old high German. I couldn't, shouldn't say normally, I suppose, but it would, uh, am I in the wrong one here? Excuse me, just a moment. We can see it, I think it looks like. Can you see it okay? All right. Like I said, my computer hasn't quite caught up with me today. Uh, so early Alemannic version of what would be the normal brot in Old High German, but the P shows that sound shift. And uh, the TH also shows an incomplete sound shift in this very early text. So this one was fun to work on because of those early elements and also the, the old high German sound shifts. So questions or comments at this point? Then we'll move on a little bit more quickly. I've got several to share yet. Coley uh, is asking, uh, were the manuscripts consistently titled using the Our Father convention? No, no, most of the time they were not titled. Um, you'll see in some of the other ones that they do have um, a cross at the prayer sometimes, I'll show you that. But, um, and other ones were, were titled Paternoster. Most of them, however, were not. Uh, we knew what it was from the nature of the manuscript. Um, and uh, there's another question here. I've got to get it a little bigger so I can see it. Uh, Rob is asking what material the manuscript is made of. This one's probably a vellum. I would say an animal skin, wouldn't it be? Would be my guess. That it's probably probably actual animal skin. Most of the early manuscripts were, and they took a long time to, and, and a lot of expense also to create these manuscripts, these these documents. So that's why we're very lucky to have what we still have because not everything was written down. Indeed, uh, Sparrow is asking. Uh, so uh, so prot equals bread, uh, and were the component ingredients different in this region? If that's a question oh, you can answer. That one, I don't know, Sparrow. Um, my cooking and baking skills are, are definitely um, minimal, so I would not be able to tell you that. That'd be an interesting question to look up, though. Yeah, so I'm going to move on to the, the next text if there's no more questions. Okay, so let's see if we can move on to the, the Weissenberg catechism. Now this looks a little bit different as you will notice and what this text is is actually a translation of the Lord's Prayer. Begins with that, that first paragraph there is the translation. Early ninth century, so again very early, probably another result of Charlemagne's uh, decree. This one is in the Franconian dialect of Old High German, fewer sound shifts than Alemannic. And it begins with a translation, but then it goes on to interpret each of the petitions in the prayer and gives a little bit of explanation of each petition to try to help people understand this prayer better. So I'll read out the translation and then read a couple of the interpretations that I put on the screen here. Our Father, you are in heaven. May your name be sanctified. May your kingdom come. May your will come to pass just as in heaven and on earth. Give us today our continual bread. 
and forgive us our debts, just as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but free us from evil. Sounds a little closer in the translation to our, to our normal, what we would think of as the Our Father. Let me read a couple of the, or the interpretations as well. Um, the second paragraph there, Our Father, you are in heaven, so restates the petition. May your name be sanctified. And then it says, God's name is always sanctified. But when we say this, then we pray that his name may be sanctified in us men through good works. Some beautiful theology there. What does it mean to say, hallowed be or sanctified, may your name be sanctified? Well, according to this particular writer, may your name be sanctified, may it be holy in us by what we do. And then it says, may your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is always and everywhere. This we pray, however, when we say this, that God's kingdom may be in us and the devil's tyranny may be removed from us. So these petitions and explanations, they're brief, but they've really got some theological depth to them and they're quite beautiful. Notice here that's Franconian dialect, like I said, doesn't have the same sound changes as Alemannic. So if you look on the second line there of the slide, you'll see the word brut, which looks quite different than the proof of the last text. So I just wanted to give you an idea of these kind of catechisms that came up as well as part of the Lord's Prayer set. Okay, I'm gonna go on to the next one here and then I'll take some questions after that because this next one that I've chosen is from Otfrid. This is one of the authors we know that's fairly rare in uh, ancient Germanic texts. So this is the Lord's Prayer from Otfrid's Evangelion book. And what this is, this is another poem. It's a poetic compilation of the Gospels written mostly in the South Rhine Franconian dialect. We have over 7,000 lines of this thing. Otfrid was a librarian and a master of the school at Weissenberg, and he devoted himself to the task of putting the gospel into Old High German, into South Rhine Franconian, in poetic form. He wanted to promote the gospel in his own language, in the vernacular, so again, his people understood it better, that he could teach them the Christian faith in their own language. Because he thought, and I quote, that Otford's, that this old Frankish language was a vehicle for the praise of God. It could be made into that. Okay, I want you to notice something here too. I didn't talk much about alliteration in the last, when we saw the Heliant. I mentioned that it was an alliterative poem. Alliteration is when we match the sounds, the first sounds in a word. This poem does not alliterate. It does not follow that old Germanic style of poetry. This poem, Otford wanted to do something new. He chose end rhyme instead. And that was really different for his age and his time. So instead of the old alliterative poetry, he chose to end rhyme his poem. Let me read the translation again for you. This is what, what we have from Otford. Our good father, you are a merciful Lord in heavens always high. May your name be holy. May your kingdom come to us, that high heaven kingdom. There may we always go and continually strive. 
may your will be here below, just as it is up in heaven. On earth, help us here, as you do for angels, now there. The daily maintenance give today to us with abundance, and fully also. There is more, your teaching of yourself. Guilt remit for us all, as we also will do, sin that we think and continually work. May your protection not leave us in the enemy's temptation, that we may not sin, may not fall thereby. Free us always, therefore, that we may be your thanes, and with your mercies, that misery always avoid. Amen. Now that sounds very different, doesn't it? Alfred did not merely translate the Gospels. He did not merely just rewrite the Gospel book. He entered a lot of interpretation and explanation into his poem as well. And that's what he does here. Notice that he, he speaks of things like guilt remit for us all, as we also will do. Forgive us our, our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But he goes ahead and defines what that guilt is, the sin that we think and continually work. So he's interpreting as well as translating. And I also notice that I said the word thanes there. Those were the followers of the war band, the Drichten, uh, the leader. So he's also hinting a little bit here at that Germanic idea of war band and followers, leader and followers that he puts into his poem as well. Again, trying to reach out to their culture and to, to bring them into the gospel in a way they will understand. I wanted to show you the manuscript as well for Evangelium book, one of the, one of the manuscripts. We have a couple here that are, are fully, or that are still uh, extant. As soon as my computer cooperates, can you see the manuscript now? There it is. Okay, this is the start of, of the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer in Otfred. And you can see here, Fater Unser Guato, Our Good Father. And it's really quite a lovely text. So questions or comments, that's the last of the old High German ones that I've chosen. There's some, a few others that I did, but just to give you a sample. Yeah, there's a couple questions. Uh, so Kate is asking, um, were these writers working from the Latin Vulgate? And do you think any of them uh, would have had knowledge of the original Greek? Um, would they have been working for, uh, going from memorized versions? Uh, only Ulfila and the Gothic translated from the Greek, probably with some Latin and a little bit as well. We're not quite sure. But uh, most of them would have been working off one edition of the Latin Bible or another. The Vulgate was not the only edition available in the Latin. Uh, in most of my texts, I actually also give the, the Latin for a comparison and speak about that. Um, some of them were working off the, the Vulgate, others were working off older editions or different editions of the Latin scriptures. And there were quite a few different editions and they were quite different in some places. So their translations are also different. And uh, from memory, I would say some of them probably yes and others probably had the, the manuscript of the scriptures in front of them. And Coley is asking, uh, well, first remarking, uh, wow, I really like Otfried's Evangelion book, uh, which leads me to ask, do you have a favorite translation? 
Do I have a favorite? My favorites are always going to be the Old English because I think that's the first Germanic language I, I learned, first of the ancient Germanic languages. And I, I think my favorites are the three Lord's Prayer poems in Old English. And I'll be showing you a couple of those uh, before we're done here. So in fact, I'm going to go ahead and move along so you can at least see some of these. Um, I want to show you a little bit from the Lindisfarne Gospels. Uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels, I'm going to show you the manuscript because it's absolutely beautiful. As soon as we can, my computer catches up here. This is the Lindisfarne Gospels, probably inscribed about 700 or so on the island, holy island of Lindisfarne. And later on, quite a bit later, probably sometime in the 10th century, a priest named Aldred put in Old English glosses or Old English translations above the Latin texts. I'll zoom in so you can see that a little bit better. We have here the start of the Pater Noster. Whoops. And then we have right above it, Father User, the gloss. And that's why these are called glosses, because they, they gloss the Latin, probably so that, number one, people could learn Latin that was in the monasteries. Also, perhaps for spiritual reasons, you know, uh, Aldred was quite the uh, linguist. He did enjoy, it seems like, working with, with the languages, both Latin and Old English. I'm going to go back to the slide here. And this is from the, the Matthew version of the Lindisfarne text. And I'll just, again, read out the translation for you. And notice here also that Aldred provided a couple of options for some of his works, or some of his words, his translations. So we have, Our Father, you are in heavens. And then we have a second option, into heavens. He just apparently felt that he needed to add that. Uh, may your name be hallowed, your kingdom comes. That's interesting, it's not may your kingdom come, it's your kingdom comes. May your will be as it is in heaven and on earth. Give to us our overabundant bread today and forgive for us our sins as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but free us from evil. That idea of overabundant, the word there is overwistlich. And it's the translation of the Latin supersubstantiale. And it's an example of a loan translation. So what Eldred is doing is he's taking each part of the word and putting an Old English gloss on each part of it, and kind of creating a new Old English word to express that. Over means beyond or over or more than or above. Vist, vist means being or existence, but also abundance, maybe even provision or food. But when we combine the two, we get something like beyond being or more than being or beyond abundance. So this is something that's more over the top of regular material bread. That idea comes up quite a bit in these Old English translations. And often um, many scholars, theologians will say that they're, they're hinting toward the Eucharist here, the overabundance, superabundant bread of the sacrament. 
So I'm not going to be able to spend too much more time on any of these because I do want to show you some of the other texts. But are there questions about the Lindisfarne glosses? Nothing's coming yet, it looks okay. like. All right. So let's take a look at. We also have in Old English here the West Saxon Gospels. These were translations of, of the Gospels into Old English from the Latin. We have quite a few manuscripts of these. I worked with three different manuscripts, uh, both the Matthew and the Luke versions. They were likely translated sometime in the late 10th or early 11th century. Uh, they were probably not read in the liturgy. So they would have been reading the Latin at the Mass in the liturgy. But the priests may have used these translations as part of their homily, maybe to help people again understand the Gospels better in their own language. So what we have here in this one, which is from the Corpus Christi College Manuscript 140, the Matthew version, we have our Father, you who are in heavens, may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, may your will come to pass on earth just as in heavens. Give to us our daily bread today and forgive for us our sins just as we forgive our guilty ones. And lead us, lead us not into temptation, but free us from evil. And then we have that wonderful little word down in the end there, sothlich, truly. That's how amen was often, not always, but often translated in Old English. So, so truly. I'm going to hurry ahead just a little bit because I want to get to one of my favorites here, which is the Lord's Prayer 1. And this is one of our Old English Lord's Prayer poems. There are three of them. This one is the shortest. It's an 11-line poem. And it's... Uh, has a lot of the hallmarks of Old English poetry. It alliterates. It's got those matching first sounds of words. It's line structure, as you can see. It's stress patterns. It's poetic word choices, poetic diction, very much in line with Old English poetry. It's found in the Exeter book, which was compiled somewhere between 970 and 990. Nobody knows for sure when the poem was composed. That's the thing about a lot of these poems, we don't know. They might have been composed shortly before the manuscript or several centuries before. We really do not know, I wish we did. So this is a wonderful little poem. And you notice that the first part is cut off and that's because we have a missing word in the manuscript. It's probably holy, which would make perfect sense both for the uh, translation and for the alliteration, alliterating with half in them in the second part of the line. And I'll read the translation. So we'll, we'll assume holy. Holy Father, you who in heavens dwell, honored with joy of glory, may for your works be hallowed, name to children of men. You are savior of men. May your kingdom come widely and your, your counsel firm will exalted under summit of heavens, also as on extensive earth. Give us today glory firm abundance, our bread, helper of men, the everlasting truth fast measurer. Do not let temptations overwhelm us too exceedingly, but give us freedom, ruler of peoples, from each of evils, always to wide life. 
now you can probably see a little bit about why this is one of my favorite texts because it's just delightfully poetic and uh, i love this idea of dom fasne blad dom fasne blad glory firm abundance so along with bread material bread we're asking for glory firm abundance from god that gives you entirely new perspective on the lord's prayer questions or comments at this point i'm sorry to have to rush a little bit i always have more information than i need that's just me so i do want to show you a couple other things but are there other questions I don't see anything coming yet. Um, oh, wait, no, here we are. Um, uh, oh, is asking if at the time, if, if we have time at the end, uh, might, might uh, Amy or Nelson read this one aloud in, in Old English? I can try, or I can pass it off to Nelson, but I can, I can try to read this one in Old English at the end, yeah. Let me get through the rest of the text, and then we'll do that, because that's always kind of fun. Okay, let me just show you briefly, then, one of the other Lord's Prayer poems. This is a a very small selection from Lord's Prayer 3. And what I want you to notice, you know what? I put in the wrong thing on this slide, didn't I? I put in the, the modern translation instead of the, uh, the old English. Whoops. Okay, well, I can still point out what I want to point out. And that's that the Lord's Prayer 3 actually has the Latin text of the Lord's Prayer, each petition, in between the old English. If I had the old English on here, you'd be able to see that, but you can still see the Latin. I left that in place. Okay, but I will show you this particular poem in the manuscript that it comes from because it's a very beautiful manuscript. You can see here at least the first part of it. This is a 47 line poem, and it's got again those Latin petitions as headings for each part of it. Notice too that these are not written out as poems. Old English poems were not generally written in a poetic way. Uh, readers would have known they were poems by their alliteration, more than likely. So I wanted to show you this, this manuscript. Okay, and we'll go ahead and move on to the next slide here. There were also homilies written about the Lord's Prayer. And the last three slides that I have here are homilies or excerpts, slight excerpts from homilies. And this first one is from Alfrich. Alfrich was a Benedictine monk and priest. He was trained at uh, Winchester and was, uh, became an, an abbot and he died about 1010 and he was highly learned fellow he was well versed in the writings of the church fathers the homilies of his predecessors on the continent and his contemporaries and he used a lot of source texts in his homilies but he had his own view and in this homily and by the way he wrote many 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 homilies there are two full homily books of uh, Elfridge plus lives of the saints he was a very prolific writer this particular homily about the Lord's Prayer starts out with a translation and then goes into, again, an explanation of each of the petitions, much deeper than those catechisms in Old High German that we looked at earlier. In fact, Elfridge has some, some beautiful theology written into this homily. I'll read to you the piece that I have on here in its translation. 
because this is his, his beginning translation into Old English of the, of the uh, Lord's Prayer. But he starts out like this. He says, the Savior Christ, after he came to this life and was grown to a man, then he was 30 winters old in the way of men. Then he began to work wonders and chose the 12 learning servants. The Old English word is learning knictas, which I absolutely love. It's disciples, but it literally is learning servants or learning boys even. Those whom we call apostles. Those were with him ever after. And he taught them all the wisdom that stands in holy books. And through them, he established all Christendom. Then they said to the Savior, Beloved, may you teach us how we may pray for ourselves. Then the Savior answered and said thus, Pray for yourselves with these words to my Father and your Father, to God Almighty. Pater noster qui es in celis. That is in English, you, our Father, who are in heavens. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be on earth, just as in heavens. Give us today our daily bread and forgive for us our sins, just as we forgive those who sin against us. And you lead us not into temptation, but free us from evil. May it be so. Notice that he doesn't use that sos leech. He uses may it be so as his translation for amen. See hit swa. May it be so. Okay, and again, Alfred goes into a very long homily. The homily is available in my, uh, translated and the text of it is available in my thesis and on my website. So you can read it a little bit more there. Kind of an interesting thing that happened with Alfred's homily is our next text that I'm gonna put up the slide for here. And that is a homily found in the Old Norwegian homily book. And this is a translation of the Lord's Prayer into Old Norwegian, a, a dialect of Old Norse. And it's actually a translation of Alfred's homily into Old Norse, mostly. There are some differences. Um, there are also some, some places where there's some things added, some things removed, some places just changed. The uh, translator apparently didn't think some of Alfred's stuff matched his old Norwegian audience, so he made a little bit of change here and there. So this is the Old Norse, or the Old Norwegian version of the Lord's Prayer. And this manuscript was probably written right around 1200. The, the homily itself, the translation is probably a little bit older. We don't really know. This is kind of one of those mystery texts that we don't know a whole lot about. It may have been uh, inscribed around Bergen in far western Norway. Scholars kind of debate that, but I think that's the latest. Um, so you can see that the, the language looks a little bit different. And I'm going to start out, this is a little bit different uh, from Alfred's text, but I'll read you the, the translation of this. And uh, what I've got on the screen there. It says, we sing, notice the sing, the verb is singing, and it's it's kind of an interesting uh, variant on, did they really sing the Lord's Prayer? Did they recite it? Did they just speak it? But I like that anyway. We sing, Pater Noster Quies in Celis. This is thus in our tongue, our Father, the one who is in heavens, because God is Father in heavens, and he is where we especially, or he is where especially he is invoked. 
just as he himself said, the heavens and earth are full of me, myself. And in that holy eloquence, it says, such that in heavens is the precious throne of Christ and earth is his footboard. We turn ourselves to the east when we pray for ourselves because from there rise up all heaven stars and not because God may be more in the east in heavens than in the west. For you cannot turn away so that God's mercy may not be for you. And when we look to the east to pray for goods for ourselves, then we shall send our heart to God who sits in heaven. We shall also know that the sinful man, whoops, and then we have a break. There must be an eye skip here. When the scribe was copying this out, he missed some words. So we have definitely a, a break in the text here where there's some words missing because we have sinful man and then we have is called heavens. Well, we know that the sinful man is not called heavens. In Alfred's translation, he has the sinful man is called earth and the righteous man is called heavens. So we have a, an eye skip here in this text. Uh, because our Lord Christ wishes to be with righteous men and wishes well to care for them. And the good man is God's church, but an evil man is the devil's power. Seven prayers are in the Paternoster. Those first words are not prayers. That is praise of our Lord who is in heaven. So it's really quite a lovely homily again, and a variation in the Old Norse of what Alfred says in the Old English, adjusted slightly to match the audience. Okay, I have one more text to show, and then we'll have a little bit of time at the end. So this last text that I'm putting up is from the Old Icelandic homily book. And I want to show you the manuscript for this because there are three homilies of the Lord's Prayer in this Old Icelandic homily book. And I struggled through the manuscript on all three of these things. And you can see the handwriting here. Let me make it just a tiny bit bigger for you. The Lord's Prayer starts right with that great large P there. And there's several different varieties of abbreviation. There's odd letter forms. There's all kinds of challenges in these particular texts. And I spent hours working on these three old Icelandic homilies. But in the end, it was very, very rewarding because I got them, even though I wanted to scream at them several times in the, in the meantime, as I'm sure most scholars of Old Norse have felt at one point or the other. I remember Paul Peterson speaking of the skaldic poetry. Beat your head against the wall. <laughs> Okay, so let's go back to the slide here. This is from the second of the homilies, the Lord's Prayer homilies in the old Icelandic homily book. And again, we don't know much about this book itself. Uh, it was probably a copy of an older text. Perhaps again, we don't really know, maybe around 1200 or so that it was inscribed. It's actually kind of an interesting manuscript. It's got a sealskin cover to it. Um, we know it can't be any older than 999 or the year 1000 because that's when Iceland converted to Christianity. So I'll go ahead and read the first bit of this, the bit that I've got on the text or on the screen there, and then we can have a few minutes for questions. Pater Noster qui es in celis, our Father who are in heavens, to a great kindred we are come. And in this Father we are brothers, Lord and slave, king and rider, wealthy one and poor one. All Christian men have various fathers on earth, some of high birth and some of low birth. But yet 
they all call to one Father, he who is in heavens. Now, if our Father is there, then we have hope of our inheritance there. But the way that the Father is to see himself, he must possess that which he gives to us, because he grants thus the inheritance that he does not separate from himself. And we come not thus to the inheritance because he himself may die. Notice the, uh, the rather rich and, and deep and somewhat obscure way this is written. Again, I tried to capture the flavor of the text in my translation. So it, it gets a little bit hairy at times. Rather, he is eternally the same that we may be able to reach him. Now, because we have learned that which we must pray, then we must also know of what must be prayed that we may not make such wrath for the Father if we ask him for evil things or otherwise, but noise. What has our Lord taught us to pray to the Father? And then the homily goes on to tell us exactly what our Lord has taught us to pray to the Father. And that's the Lord's Prayer. And it explains each petition. Again, sometimes in a little bit weird theology, I marked several places in there that we would not say is uh, orthodox these days, but remember they were fairly new converts and they were still getting the feel of these things. So I'm gonna show here, put up this last slide. That is my website that I have created for all of these texts, they are all up there. So if you wanna go ahead and look at any of the texts, their translations, my commentary, they're available for you. Okay, questions, comments, we can take a few minutes, I think, right, Nelson, for that? Yep, yeah, a few minutes left here. Um, so Sharon's asking, um, uh, what is the most interesting or surprising thing you discovered? And what was the most revelatory moment, if there was one? Oh boy, I had quite a few of them over these. Um, probably one of my best moments was when I finished these old Icelandic homilies, getting through these, um, just because of the the actual relief, <laughs> I should say, of it and accomplishment. So that was probably one of my best moments. Um, working on those Lord's Prayer poems in Old English was probably some of my other high points from this. Um, and just the beauty of those poems, the richness of their theology and the richness of their prayer is incredible. And when we think of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, right? Well, no. The texts coming out of these are extraordinarily beautiful and, and just extraordinary in themselves. Uh, I think that's a more of a comment from Kate. Uh, very cool project. Love seeing all the translations. Uh, they put me in mind of the episode in Acts after Pentecost when travelers from all over the Roman Empire hear the apostles speaking in their language. Uh, yes. wonderful insight into other minds. Yes, and that is actually mentioned in one of the Lord's Prayer poems that's alluded to all of the different languages. And the people who wrote these, these texts really wanted their contemporaries to experience the gospel, the Lord's Prayer in their own languages so they could understand them better and have a closer relationship with Christ because of it. If you can't understand the texts, you're not going to know the God behind them. And that's what they wanted to do, is to be able to get people to understand these texts in their own languages. Uh, it's another question from, from Kali. Um, could you discern any theological differences implicit between the Northern, Eastern, and Western Germanic versions of the prayer? Uh, or the theological variance is more the consequence of the newness of the conversion and the distance from the Mother Church, as in the Icelandic? I suspect that a lot of the, the theological sticky points that I discovered in some of these are probably from the newness of the conversion, especially in the Old Norse. Um, 
There are a couple of places here and there that are a little odd in some of the other texts, but again, we're on the outskirts here. Um, there were theological differences. That is something that I need to study more and I'm actually gonna be getting into further in my dissertation for my doctoral work. But um, I would say that it's somewhat as a, a combination of things, both the newness of the conversion and also just the variations from distance and time and, uh, and space that they're, they're dealing with with these, these older texts. Remember, they didn't have the communications that we have. Couldn't just get the latest uh, documents from Rome here. Uh, Pete is asking if you found any hint of influence of these ancient ancient translations impacting the modern practice of prayer forms in the contemporary languages. Hmm. That is a very good question that I'm actually not sure that I can answer because I have not thought of that one before. Um, I think that as modern people, though, that we can benefit from reading these older prayers and that perhaps they should influence us more than they do. Because by reading some of these old texts of the old of the Lord's Prayer, we get a totally different view of the prayer. We get totally different wording. We get things that, you know, we're, it's such a familiar prayer to us. We say it, it rolls off our tongue just quicker than quick every Sunday and in our own personal prayers. But if we read it in another language, in another translation, it opens up whole new vistas for us of the meanings behind these prayers and how others looked at them. So if we don't, have influence of them in our modern prayer. We should. Um, and um, uh, Sparrow uh, speaking for me very much as well, and I'm sure many others says, magnificent, we want to hear Amy read aloud. Okay, yes, Sparrow always made me read aloud in her classes. Um, I will go ahead and attempt then to read the Lord's Prayer poem one. And I will ask ahead of time for you to excuse my presentation and my pronunciation, but I will do my best. All right, so we're going to say, Holy Father, Thu fe in heofenum eardest, gewerthad woldres dreama, si finum werkum halgat, noman nitha vernum, thu ert nergent vera, hume fin rice vide. And thin rad fast villa arrayed under rodorous crofa. Yach son on rumre folden. Sile us today, dom fastne blad. Laf userna, helpend vera. Thone singlan, soft fast meltod. Ne lad usage costunga, nisen to suitha. Ak thu us freodon yef, folka walden, from yifla gawam, ato weeden feore. Probably muffed a few things in there, but it's probably close. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. I don't see any more questions coming in. Um, a few more thanks. Many thanks to you. Um, and from me as well, uh, it was a, a, a real treat for me to be able to watch this, this project grow and uh, come to completion. And I've uh, already been poking around a little bit on your website and it looks like it'll, it'll be a really great resource to, to have available. And I, I hope people check it out and uh, really make use of it. it well, thank you. To, 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 to
And thank you to you, Nelson, too, for all your work on this. I know this is a much larger project than most Signum theses, but I uh, really appreciate your support and all your help and your, your information that you've given me over this time. So thank you. Uh, pleasure was all mine. <laughs> and thank uh, you for attending today, everybody, as well. Uh, we had uh, to one last question in the audience. We had uh, 14 people in the audience. So thank you all very much for, for coming and uh, attending this thesis theater. Yeah. All right. Goodbye, well, everyone. <laughs> thank you for coming.